Good morning. It's good to be with you as we worship together today. Uh, it is Labor Day weekend, right? Um, the Sankrens are hosting a potluck uh, at their home after service today, uh, so that's exciting, something to look forward to. Um, but Labor Day usually means we're transitioning into the fall, right? Uh, I know that many of you have kids or grandkids who are getting ready to go to preschool or, or, or back to school. Um, maybe our hot summer will finally start to cool down a bit, right? Uh, but before we start running ahead into fall, I want to pause and reflect on Labor Day. Um, have any of you been downtown to the Seattle Art Museum? All right, a few of you have been down there. Uh, do you recognize this guy? You've seen him right outside the, the art museum. This is the Hammering Man. The Hammering Man, an art piece by Jonathan Borofsky. Uh, there's several uh, copies of this across the world, actually, and in many different cities. Now, if you've seen The Hammering Man, you know that it's not just an art piece. It actually moves. Let's see. I think. There we go. Right? It actually moves. Um, four times a minute, 20 hours a day. Anyone want to do the math? 4,800 times a day, the hammering man pounds away at his work. Every day, except Labor Day. If you go downtown to Seattle tomorrow, he will not be moving. Hammering man takes the day off to celebrate Labor Day, right? Now, um, Labor Day arose out of the labor movement in the late 19th century. At that time, the Industrial Revolution was well on its way, and many people at that time worked up to 12 hours a day, seven days a week, including children, in uh, factories that were often very dangerous, uh, in mines where there wasn't much oxygen to breathe, right? It was kind of a mess. Uh, work was like a curse, right? Work was like a curse, and society seemed bent on grinding people into destruction for the sake of productivity, right? So, in the late 19th century, people rose up, they protested, they advocated for more humane working hours and conditions, uh, and eventually Labor Day emerged as a celebration of this labor movement. Now, in many ways, we, we've come a long way from those days of dangerous factories and, and mines and, and things like that. However, if we're honest, it can still seem like society is bent on grinding people into destruction for productivity, right? 
right? Work still grains on us. It very often it can feel like work is a curse. And this is the question I want to explore today. Is work a curse? Is work a curse? Or does work have a place in the kingdom of God? Does our work have a place in the kingdom of God? Does the redemption that Jesus has brought to the world have any effect on our everyday work? To get a sense of this, we need to look to the story of Scripture. So if you have your Bible and want to read along, uh, Genesis chapter 1 is where we're starting today. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be flipping around a little bit today, but we're, we're going to start at the beginning. Scripture tells a really big story about work. But I think a lot of times our vision of work has been narrowed because of the part of that story that we find ourselves in. So today we're going to look at the big story and hopefully get a bigger vision of what work is and what our work means. So let's begin. Genesis 1, it tells the story of creation, right? God creates the heavens and the earth. He speaks and life and light burst forth. Uh, there's land and water. There's plants and animals. Then in verse 26, we see the creation of humanity and the origins of work. So let's read Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit and seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, all the birds in the sky, all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. And despite our mixed feelings about it, we thank you for work. God, as we reflect on the words of your scripture today, I ask that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
So in the creation story, we see humanity made and the origins of work. Verse 26, again, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Right? Humanity is given a task. Humanity is given work. We see this spelled out even more in verse 28. God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. God creates humanity and gives people the work of ruling and caring for creation. And to reiterate it again in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it to work it and take care of it. So from the very beginning of creation, humanity has work to do. But what does this work mean? What does this work mean? Well, we can see it in the narrative, but it becomes even more clear when we compare it to some of the competing creation stories of the day. Right? So... In, in uh, other ancient cultures, apart from Israel, there were other stories of creation. Other stories about how all of this came to be. And in some of those stories, the gods created the world and everything in it for themselves. You know, they, they made food so they could eat it. They made places so they could go be there. And then humans were kind of created as an afterthought. It also for the gods, for themselves, right? Humans were kind of made as an afterthought because the gods needed some kind of labor force to deal with all the stuff they had made, right? So in these stories, humans are basically slaves, slaves to the gods. And work is basically slavery. That's the story that a lot of these other cultures had. People existed at the whim of the gods to do whatever the gods said to do. But we hold those stories up next to the creation story in Genesis, uh, and we have a, quite a different picture, right? Uh, God doesn't create because he's hungry. He, he doesn't create for himself. God doesn't need food, right? He is eternally self-sustaining. God doesn't create for that reason. He doesn't create selfishly like the gods of those other stories. Rather, the opposite is true. God creates out of the selfless overflow of his heart. In Genesis, God creates out of love. He creates out of love. This is emphasized even more in Genesis chapter 2, uh, where God creates the human, and then he creates, he plants a garden for the human uh, so that he would have a place to live and food to eat. And then he creates animals for the human uh, as, you know, little friends and companions. But he doesn't find one quite up to match the human. So he makes another human 
for the human, right? And you have man and woman. The whole story of Genesis 2, everything God does, he does selflessly out of love and care. So, so in the other creation stories, the gods created selfishly for themselves, but in Genesis, it's just the opposite. God creates selflessly. And the same thing is true about the creation of people, the creation of humanity. In other creation stories, humans were basically just made as slaves, and their work was a sign of their slavery. But in Genesis, the opposite is true. God creates humans not as slaves, but in his image. In his image, right? He creates humans not as slaves, but in his image. And work, the work they're given, is not a sign of slavery, but rather it's a sign of dignity. It's a sign of dignity and authority, right? And, and this is ultimately what the phrase in his image means. Now, in the ancient world, there were kings who ruled. Uh, and often kings would set up a monument or a statue of themselves in the places where they reigned, right? And that monument or statue was their image. It was made in their image as a sign that they were the ruler of this place, right? Sort of like we use flags today, right? You know, flags waving as a sign of where you are and, and all of that. So kings would place an image of themselves somewhere. And then also they would empower and authorize dignitaries to go and, and serve and oversee various parts of their kingdom. And this, of course, was a powerful role and an honor to serve as such a dignitary for a king. So with that historical context in mind, look back at Genesis, right? What does God do? God has selflessly created everything. And then after that, he establishes an image that functions as a sign of his kingdom. The image is humanity. We are that image, right? Then he empowers and authorizes humanity as dignitaries who will now oversee parts of his kingdom. That's what's going on here. Let us make mankind in our image so that they may rule. So in Genesis, humans are made with dignity, with authority, and the work that people have is a sign of that dignity and that authority. It's a powerful role, and it's an honor to serve the king. This is why in verse 31 it says, God saw all that he made, and it was very good. 
Very good. So, so this is what I want you to hear. It's what I want you to see. From the very beginning of creation, humanity has had work. Humanity has had work, and that work was good. That work was part of the very good creation that God has made. It was not a curse. It was a gift. Work is not a curse. But it has become cursed. Right? It has become cursed. Genesis 1 and 2 are only the beginning of the story, but it is vital that we pay attention to that beginning. Right? We wrestle with work because we only see it in light of the curse, not its original intention and design. In Genesis 3, sin enters the picture. And what was originally good, creation, becomes corruption. What was originally meant to be good becomes corrupted. So flip over to Genesis 3, a page or so, and see how this is described. After humanity sins, God comes to them and he describes what life is going to look like, what life is going to be like now that sin has entered the world. In verse 16, God speaks to the woman and says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, right? So things are already starting to get messed up. In verse 17 and on, it continues. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. So what was originally meant to be a good gift becomes painful, toil, difficult, hard. Right? The, the first task that God gave to be fruitful and multiply is now marred and painful. The second task that God gave to rule over and care for creation now becomes marred and painful. And this is the way that we often view work. It's exhausting. It's painful. Something to be avoided, right? We see work as a curse. But I want us to begin to see that work itself is not a curse. Rather, it's become cursed. Birthing children is painful. Uh, raising children is, is painful. 
Gardening is painful. Thorns and thistles, weeds, right? During the 19th century, factories and mines were painful. For today's office workers, thorns and thistles might come in the form of constant emails, phone calls, text messages, right? Ugh, that inbox is just a bunch of thorns and thistles. Can I delete it all, right? No, you have to do it all, right? Right? Work has become cursed. It's become difficult. And see, this curse not only has made work difficult, but I think it's also marred and damaged our vision of work. Uh, it's, it's actually begun to break apart uh, what work was meant to be and how we see it. Uh, the, the author, Tom Nelson, names a number of ways that work has become affected by sin, right? And, and the first thing he names, we've already talked about, work becomes painful. Work becomes painful, right? It's, it's difficult, it's hard, uh, on and on. Uh, and so that's one way that work has become marred. But there are some others. Another way that work has been marred by sin is often it, it feels like it becomes meaningless, Right? What's the point of doing all this work? The author of Ecclesiastes reflects on this. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. Yeah? This too is meaningless, right? This is just this great lament of the the kind of work that we find ourselves in, work that has become cursed. What's, what's the point of all of this? I think one of the ways that work becomes meaningless for us in our culture, uh, uh, the theologian Dallas Willard reflected that, that there's a difference between our work and our job. But so often for us, we have reduced work to a job. And so, it's just a job, right? Just doing it for the money. There's no meaning in it. It's just a job. We've separated uh, what God's intention of work was and turned it into, do I have a job? What's my job? How much am I getting paid? Right? And it just becomes meaningless. But that's not what God's intention was. Another way that work gets marred by sin that he mentions is that it simply becomes distorted. Uh, and there are two different ways that work becomes distorted. One of them is that uh, we can often become workaholics, right? Work becomes God, right? Uh, that's all I can do is work. It just consumes all of my time, all of my thoughts, all of my energy. Work is everything. That's a distortion of work not as it was meant to be, right? And in, in, in those initial days of creation, God created Sabbath also as rest, right? Uh, and so work can become distorted and become sort of a God that we worship and get sucked into. On the other hand, work can become distorted so that we resent it, hate it, flee from it, and we just become slothful and lazy, Right? Here's the irony in my life. Somehow both of those things can be true. Somehow I, I often find myself consumed by everything that needs to get done 
and lazy. I don't know how that happens, but it does, right? Anyone else feel that way sometimes, right? I'm so busy and I'm just going to sit on the couch because I can't handle it all, right? These are ways that work becomes distorted by sin. There's one more way that he uh, mentions that work has become distorted, and that is that we end up having a sort of dualism with which we view work. There is some kind of work that is good and worthwhile, and other kinds of work that's menial, pointless. That's not true. All work that God has given is good, right? We, we often find ourselves comparing the kind of work that we do with others and thinking, well, mine is just meaningless, but theirs is great. We even compare parts of our work that we do, right? Oh, I love these parts. You know, it's great when I get to do that, but man, this other stuff is just awful. But, but that's a distortion, right? All of work is good. It's meant to be good. It's meant to be a gift. Uh, I've heard it said, comparison is the thief of joy, right? Comparison is, is, is the, the way where all, all joy, all hope just goes out the window the moment we start comparing. So instead of viewing work in some dualistic way where this is worthwhile and that's pointless, uh, we need to bring these things together, right? So, so work becomes painful, it can become meaningless, it can become distorted, it can, can become dualistic. Do you, do you resonate with any of these ways that work has become distorted? We wrestle with work because instead of viewing it through the lens of good creation, we view it through the lens of corruption, the ways it has been cursed. Instead of seeing God's kingdom and living as a dignified authority within it, we end up only seeing the enemy's kingdom. And, and we see it all as a curse. But here's the good news. Jesus came to restore the kingdom of God. Jesus came declaring the kingdom of God has come near. Through his life, death, and resurrection, we see what began as good creation and became corruption begin to burst forth in new creation. New creation. Uh, Revelation 21 says that there is coming a day when the heavens and the earth will be made new. All things will be made new. And the very first act of that renewal came as the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus was raised from the dead and overcame death itself, that was the very first bursting forth, the very first glimmer of God's doing something new here. God's renewing the earth, renewing the heavens. The very first act of renewal was Jesus' resurrection, which means that new creation 
has already begun. We are living in the midst of a world that is broken, but being made new. In Christ, as as we are in Christ, we actually get to participate in this new creation. We get to live in this resurrection life. And this is not just spiritual salvation, right? Uh, to, To, you know, go off to heaven someday. This is right now. The kingdom of God is being established right now. New creation is bursting forth right now. And so this affects our work too. It gives us a whole new vision for what it is that we do. Paul ties all of this together in a well-known passage from Ephesians. If you want to turn there, it's Ephesians chapter 2. He writes, beginning in verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Right? We're participating in that resurrection life. We're raised with him. It's by grace that you have been saved, through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Because we've been raised with Christ, we get to live in that resurrection life. And we're invited to see work, not as it's become corrupt, but to partner with God once more in the work of new creation. And our work is a part of that. He's created us in Christ Jesus to do good works. That doesn't earn us salvation. He's very clear about that. But it's part of our salvation. It's because we've received salvation that our work becomes transformed. And everything that we do is part of participating in the kingdom of God. God is rebuilding, establishing his kingdom. And everything that we do, all of our work, not just our job, all of our work is a part of that. And so living in this means that some of these ways that work has been corrupted can begin to be renewed. That duality where some work is worthwhile and others pointless, can can begin to go away. As as we see, all work has purpose as it has been given by God. 
to serve and love others. That distortion where work becomes either a God that we worship or something that we flee from can, can begin to go away because God is the God that we worship. And work is a good gift that we've received because we're made with dignity. We're made with authority. And so we can enter into our work with that dignity and authority. Work no longer is meaningless. Uh, elsewhere, Paul writes, whatever you do, do unto the glory of God. That means whatever you do can be done to the glory of God. Whatever you do can be done to the glory of God. Driving a vehicle can be done to the glory of God. Filling out forms can be done to the glory of God. Answering phone calls can be done to the glory of God. Everything that you do can be done for the glory of God. Work is no longer meaningless. It's part of our worship. Now, there are still times that work will be painful, right? But we press on to the day when all things will be made new. When there will be no more tears or pain. And so here's the question I want to leave you with. A question that I mentioned earlier, Dallas Willard uh, mentioned. He talked about the difference between uh, work and a, and a job. And he said this, everyone works, that's true. But there's more than that. Everyone has a work, right? Everyone has work, everyone has to work, but everyone has a work. What is your work? What is your work? What is the work that God has given you? The, the thing that is in your life that you can do to the glory of God. The thing that is in your life that you can give yourself to, that you can serve others with, the thing in your life that you have been given dignity and authority to do. Everyone has a work. What is your work? As we all enter into that, we get to join in the work of the kingdom of God. I want to close by sharing with you a song and a prayer. Um, the, the prayer that we will, will pray comes from this little book. Some of you have heard of it called Every Moment Holy. Uh, it's, it's a book that is about every moment being holy, right? The fact that everything we do can be done to the glory of God. And it's filled with prayers to pray in the middle of everyday moments. There's a whole section in this book called Liturgies of Labor and Vocation. Let me read you some of the ones that are in here. There's a liturgy for domestic days, right? The days when you're at home, when you have to clean something up, when you have to do the laundry, when you have to whatever it is, right? There's a prayer for that. 
Uh, there's a liturgy for the preparation of a meal, right? You got to make dinner. There's a prayer for that. Jerry, there's a prayer for the keeping of bees. There's a prayer for the washing of windows. There's a prayer for home repairs. Yeah. A prayer for students and scholars. A prayer for waiters and waitresses. For medical providers. There's a prayer for changing diapers. There's two prayers for changing diapers. You need it, right? Every one of these moments is something that we can enter into prayerfully. The, the prayer that, that we will pray together is a prayer for the labors of community. It's a prayer that we can all pray together. But before we pray that, I want to share a song with you uh, that speaks to what we've been reflecting on today. And so uh, look to the screen and listen, and if you get the hang of it, you can join in and sing or hum along. Your labor is not in vain Though the ground underneath you is cursed and stained Your planting and reaping are never the same Your labor is not in vain Your labor is not unknown Though the rocks they cry out And the sea it may grow The place of your toil may not seem like Finally, with laughter and joy, be filled. 
serpent that hurts and destroys will be killed and all that is broken be I am with you I am with you I am with you I am with you for I call Join me as we pray this responsive prayer together. Our lives are so small, O Lord. Our vision so limited. Our courage so frail. Our hours so fleeting. Therefore, give us grace and guidance for the journey ahead. We are gathered here because we believe that we are called together into a work we cannot yet know the fullness of. Still, we trust the voice of the one who has called us. And so we offer you, O oh God, these things, our dreams, our plans, our vision. Shape them as you will, our moments and our gifts. May they be invested toward bright, eternal ends. Richly bless the work before us, Father. Shepherd us well, lest we grow enamored of our own accomplishment or entrenched in old habit. Instead, let us listen for your voice. Our hearts ever open to the quiet beckonings of your spirit in this endeavor. Let us, in true humility and poverty of spirit, remain ever ready to move at the impulse of your love in paths of your design. You alone, O oh God, by your grace and life-giving spirit, have power to knit our imperfect hearts, our weaknesses, our strengths, our stories, and our gifts to one another. Unite your people and multiply our meager offerings, O oh Lord, that all might resound to your glory. May our acts of service and creation, frail and wanting as they are, be met and multiplied by the mystery, by the mysterious workings of your Spirit, who weaves all things together toward a redemptive, more good and glorious than we have eyes to see or courage to hope for. May our love and our labors now echo your love and your labors, O oh Lord. 
Let all that we do here in these our brief lives, in this our brief moment to love, in this the work you have ordained, for this community, flower and winsome and beautiful foretaste of greater glories yet to come. O Spirit of God, now shape our hearts. O Spirit of God, now guide our hands. O Spirit of God, now build your kingdom among us. Amen.